Hey, Berto, let's read some listener emails, and let's also do some tougher bluffs. What do you say? I love it. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a licensed therapist and a professor. My name is Humberto Castaneda, and I am an animator. Tougher bluff. Greater anger expressions among Americans among Americans was associated with greater health risks. Tougher bluff. Greater anger expressions among Americans was associated with greater health risks. Tougher bluff. That has got to be tough because the greater anger expressions probably raise that stress level and it probably makes you more susceptible to stroke and heart disease. It's true. It's tough. You're right. Very, very good. All right. Similar, same study, similar idea for Japanese people, not Americans. Greater anger expressions was associated with fewer health risks than for Americans, if that makes sense. Oh, whoa. I never even thought it could vary like that. Uh, I mean, I'm going to stick to, I'm going to say bluff. Uh, it was still high. Oh, wait, but it was fewer compared to Americans. That's right. Oh, uh, okay. I'm still going to stick to bluff. I'm going to say like it was even higher. It's tough. There was fewer health risks. Fewer really? health risks for Japanese people, yeah. I wonder if they have developed a more, quote-unquote, healthy way to express anger. Hard to know. Uh, yeah, I mean, the implication is that their anger expressions in the Japanese culture don't create as much stress for them. In fact, it could re relieve it, maybe. Yeah, maybe it helps them in some way. So, so one thing I was reading about, actually, I was listening to, uh, uh, this idea that... Uh, Nothing stresses us explicitly in our environment. What stresses us is the is our mental model about what is what we're seeing or hearing. So you know, if we see a snake on the ground right now, you and I would probably get stressed, like, "Oh my God, that's a snake!" But if someone's here and they're a zoologist and and they know what that snake is and it's not a dangerous snake, they're probably like, "Oh no, no, that's just this coral snake." Or actually, corals I think are bad, but whatever. You get my point. Uh, so maybe the Japanese look at it like, "Oh, I'm angry. I must express myself because that's how I keep myself from being unhealthy." <laughs> I'm being very racist there, but you know what I'm no. saying. No. <laughs> It would be racist is oh so I am very angry. As a Japanese person I can I can make that that thing. Well yeah, but the stereotype of Japanese people is that they don't express emotion and so this doesn't make any sense. Actually right? but uh, stereotypes are not great, but I'm thinking the the stereotype I have in my head is oh so ga Right, yeah. You know? Yeah, when Japanese people uh, get angry men, especially in movies and anime, there's this voice that they do. It's like, yes. Oh, <laughs> 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 yes, exactly. And so in my mind, they're always getting angry. <laughs> <laughs> to that point, it is it is interesting how how language can be deceptive sometimes. Um, I used to listen to my, my friend is Korean, and he would speak to his mom over the phone in Korean often. And I would hear only one side of the conversation and not understand a single word they're saying. But I always thought there was always some drama happening because their inflections were always very worried sounding like oh da, 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 and I, I can't do it but like I, I, he would get off the phone and i'm like what's wrong man uh nothing why what you sounded like there's something wrong with it no we were just talking about and it was very interesting like what i interpreted from my english perspective or maybe spanish perspective as as uh you know drama unfolding right. maybe just be part of their natural inflections or right something. i mean they even have that in, in english speaking countries in that some english-speaking countries like i think canada or certain areas of england where people ask questions with every single thing they say so do they <laughs> yeah it'll be like it'll be like 
So I went to America, <laughs> and I had a hamburger. And so people think, oh, you're asking me a question. Right. <laughs> but, to them, but to them, it's 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 just, just a statement? Yeah. I think it's like a softer statement. Like, like so if you're going to disagree with me, I, I was just asking. Right. So if you're like, you didn't go to America, I'm like, oh, I was only asking. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, Do you have one? A toughie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are uh, – so do uh, – through research of facial expressions around the world, um, this research, these researchers came to the conclusion that there are three universal, three universal facial expressions that are tied to specific emotions, tough or bluff. Start, start over, say it again. Uh, during research on facial expressions around the world, these researchers came to the conclusion there are three facial expressions that are universal and that are tied to these specific emotions. I see. Three universal uh, meaning that there's not two and not four. That's right. There are three. And our three. Our three main weapons yeah. are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our surprise. And, <laughs> and guile. And uh, ruthless disposition. <laughs> yeah. I would say that. So let me try to see what they are. So facial expressions of, of pain and disgust. Or no, say sadness. Wait, there's probably more than three. You have like happiness, oppiness. <laughs> or you have and you have disgust and you have pain and you have sadness. So I'm going to say it's more than three. So bluff, bluff. Uh, it's true. It's tough. It's oh. bluff. Sorry. Which, which are the? Sorry, no. Which you're right. You're right. Oh, I'm right. You're right. <laughs> it's bluff. What's true is that you're right. <laughs> there are more than three. <laughs> I can't do this. God damn it. Uh, it is bluff. There are six. <laughs> it was uh, uh, anger, fear, surprise, disgust. Happiness and uh, pain, maybe. Yeah, some of that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but then you know, there's 43 muscles or something in the face, and they can create you know like 10,000 distinct uh, facial expressions. So obviously, it's uh, it's clear that there's lots of variants that isn't universal, right? right? But there are these core ones that are that seem to be you know the same throughout cultures. Yeah, I had a client. I, I've had a, I've had a number of clients from I, I'm from. Eastern Africa, and there are people there that when they want to say, uh huh, you know how when we're listening, we're like, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. Uh -huh. They, they would actually Dang. breathe in. They would go, <gasps> so, oh. so, so tell me a story. So okay. tell me a story. So I was walking down the pier. <gasps> are you okay? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. And I was going to go get a corn dog. <gasps> okay. By the uh, roller coaster there, or sorry, the Ferris wheel. Yeah. And so I was walking and I crossed the street. <gasps> no. That nothing bad happened. <laughs> so that's what they do. They, they they breathe in and yeah. And when I was talking to them, I thought they were afraid or something like, or they were surprised, like they were really shocked. And <laughs> wait, but, where was this? In Seattle, but in, but Seattle. they're from Eastern Africa. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, <laughs> that's that'd be tough. Yeah, because your natural instinct is like, are you all right? Yeah, are you? No, well, I, I'm not doing anything scary. Yeah, it's, it's okay. <laughs> this isn't a horror story. <laughs> all right, tougher bluff. Overweight teens who have successfully lost weight did it more to impress their peers or please their parents than for their own sake. Tougher bluff. Overweight teens who have successfully lost weight for and you know the the weight they kept it off for a long time did it more to impress their peers or please their parents than for their own sake. Tougher bluff. Yeah, I mean, I, I I would see that being tough. Uh, it feels like, especially at that age, 
you probably aren't that concerned yet with mortality and and your heart disease and blah blah blah. So I could see that as more of a social pressure uh, in those cases. So I'm going to go tough. Right. That's certainly the stereotype, but it's bluff. It's the opposite. Oh, really? Overweight teens who successfully lost weight. Now, oh, interesting. They did it to please for their own sake, for their own health, for their own reasons, internal reasons, rather than trying to impress their peers or. You know what? I. That totally makes sense. And I actually, I, I missed, it's not that I didn't hear you. I just, it didn't register in my mind that successfully is very different from the initial motivation someone might have. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, all right. Well, let's read, uh, let's read an email from a listener. What do you think here? Let's do it. Uh, listener Jason says, have you ever covered a show about people with fat issues after they lose weight where they think they're, when, where they think they're still overweight and how marriage is affected by one spouse being overweight? He also says, great show. Keep up the great work. But he, so he wants to know, uh, about, he wants us to talk about, uh, where, you know, people lose weight, but they still think they're overweight. Yeah. So I have a friend who lost a lot of weight. I'm not talking about like 10 pounds. I'm talking about like 100 pounds. I don't, obviously, I don't know his internal psychology, so I'm not going to speak to that. But I am going to say that many of us that knew him, when the, the ones of us that had been seeing him regularly during that period of time, didn't notice the change as much, even though it was such a dramatic change. And when I was shown a photo, like he showed me a photo of him from a year prior. Now, I knew he had lost weight, right? But when he showed me a photo, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, you were never the, like this big? What the hell happened? On the other hand, people that hadn't seen him since he had lost the weight could barely recognize. And the people that hadn't seen him, that still hadn't seen him, that I had talked to, like I'm like, hey, have you seen this guy? Like he's lost all the weight. The conversation was interesting because they still re- they still referred to him and talked to him and everything as if he is you know, still big, even though I'm telling him, no, 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 he's lost a lot of the weight, right? So I can only imagine that mentally, you might have a similar model happening inside of you that uh, just like I didn't notice that things were changing, right? Like you may as personally, even though you might see the scale changing, like visually, you may not notice because it's so gradual, right? So if your mental model is, I am fat, I'm disgusting, you're not going to notice from one day to the next, oh, hey, look, I look great. So maybe day to day, you're like, I'm fat, I'm disgusting, I'm fat, I'm disgusting. You, it's hard to imagine that one day you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm not fat, I'm not disgusting. Right. So I could see that. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah, it's related to something that I experienced as a kid because I was large. I was really tall compared to everyone else. I was like the tallest kid in my class. And, and we're not talking just like, oh, I was a, you know an inch or two. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I was like a, f- a full foot maybe more taller than than the average kid in my class. Did they call you the mountain? <laughs> <laughs> As I grew older, and so now I'm 6'1", six 6'1". Six six and so, you know, it's tall-ish, but it's not gargantuan, right. you know. And so, but I still see myself as a gargantuan person. I, in my mind, I'm like a seven-foot tall mo- <laughs> monster, and but in reality, I'm not. And so it's, so sometimes I'll run into that, you know, like I'll, like someone will say to me like, oh, Kirk, yeah, you're, you're an average height or something. You're an average build. And I'll be like, what? Because <laughs> in my head, I just have this image of myself just being a, a monster. I mean, when I played baseball, I was, like I said, a full foot. This is in middle school. And so it, at that time was probably the biggest gap. I, when I was like 13, I looked like I was 20 years old. Uh-huh. And, and the 13, some 13-year-olds looked like they were seven. Do you know what <laughs> wow, I mean? Wow, yeah, totally. And so when I got up to, the, up to bat, the coach was always like, you know, go back. He's going to hit it out of the park. And, and so it was a lot of pressure to <laughs> Like, oh man! You know to do <laughs> really, sucks. and when I played football, same thing. Like sure. 
the the opposite coaches would always you know number forty watch, take him down watch out for him <laughs> you know and and so because a lot of sports are by age not necessarily yeah. by how big you are you know that's true oh actually that's we should talk about that at some point <laughs> yeah and and so yeah so so today like your friend. I still see myself as this giant, awkward monster, when in reality, I'm just an average-sized monster, monster. <laughs> person. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you mentioned the thing about age, sports. Imagine if boxing was by age, right? Like, here's like a heavyweight, Mike Tyson, battling a little 120-pound, but they're the same age. <laughs> yeah, right. Like in wrestling, they don't do it by age. They, right. do, it, they do it by weight. Right. And so. so that's interesting that um, you had that. I, I have a question about it. Uh, did you have a turning point where you, at one point you felt it was an advantage and at one point you felt it wasn't an advantage? It or? was almost always an advantage uh-huh. because in sports and in being bullied and in getting sort of kudos, you know, people would be like, oh, Kirk, he's, you know, yeah. he's, he's big, give it to him or he, he's strong. So right. make him, you know, in, in junior high, I won best body. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but the only reason I didn't work out. It's just because o- you're tall. Yeah, it's just because I look like a man. In, yeah. in eighth grade, I looked like a man while, while a lot of the other kids looked like, 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 yeah, like boys. And so I got best body. <laughs> so there was someone like that in my class in Columbia. Um, I had kind of the opposite, or I don't know, opposite. Uh, like my journey in height, <laughs> I started at the back of the line, like tall, you know, because they would line us up in uh, smallest at the front, tallest at the back of the line. We had to stand in lines in the morning in the field at school and they would beat us. No, just kidding. They wouldn't beat us. It was just like to line up to go into classrooms. So I started off in the back of the line in the earlier grades. And every year I would get closer to that middle. <laughs> you know, I would inch my way forward to the middle of the line. Eventually I was dead smack in the middle of the line. Uh, but there was this guy who was in my class, so in, my, in our year. He was about a year older than the average age or at least almost a year or whatever. But it doesn't matter. He looked 25. And he was like, and he was uh, starting to act too. So he was like getting a little bit of local notoriety and stuff. So of course he he got a lot of attention, but I I also imagine it must've been somewhat tough for him because he looked like an adult. And yet here he is like in eighth grade, ninth grade. Now, of course, yeah, sure. No one would bully him. No one would even think to be stupid enough to do that. And I'm sure he got attention, like plenty of attention from girls, although they might've been somewhat intimidated. But at the same time, like the teachers, I could tell, kind of treated him a little different huh. and not necessarily for good because you kind of expect you're an adult you better know this you know right. so I don't know it's it's a very fascinating thing being yeah. being uh, different than everyone else yeah I can relate to some of those things I'd say the downside was that I wasn't as coordinated as my smaller friends mm. my shorter friends were I was always jealous of my shorter mm-hmm. friends that were extremely coordinated and they just seemed to move with grace the I way see. that I just seemingly could not mm. and I don't know if being shorter would have helped me in that I just, but I but you know that's so saying it's like oh he, his brain hasn't caught up with his leg <laughs> yeah. the, the length of his arms and legs yet totally so so there is definitely a disadvantage there and there was also just a disadvantage of just feeling like a like a monster you know I I wasn't it wasn't I wasn't a normal person and when I you're see. in junior high you want to be normal yeah totally and you don't want to stick out and so I definitely wanted to be shorter and I would kind of hunch over a little bit you know mm. to to just seem like to have a lesser profile a smaller profile and so once once an episode my cats try to kill each other and this <laughs> is this is that moment oh my gosh there they go jesus guys it's not mad max fury road come on 
No, I hear it's fantastic. Have you heard that the people, men in the men's movement are upset because there's too much Charlize Theron and not enough uh, Hardy? I did. I, I I guess I did see something briefly on the Facebook, but <laughs> yeah, they're upset because it's an anti man. I don't know if it's a spoof or what, but it doesn't. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, they're saying Mad Max Fury Road is anti male. Well, yeah, because they're they're saying it's basically it's a it's a it's a hidden. It's like a, they they felt duped into watching a feminist movie. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, maybe maybe it's like sea men are going to ruin the environment and kill us all. This whole binary thing about men and women just bothers me. It, it just it's just it just bores me to death. You know, it's just like come on, people. Can, I mean, can't you identify with a woman character in a movie? I mean, if she's doing some badass stuff and you're a man, just because she's a woman, you can't identify with her and you, right. you can't you can't revel and and celebrate what she's doing. Not if, if she doesn't have a penis. God. It's just so dumb. They should have drawn a penis on her, and then everyone would have been fine. You know? Yeah. So um, I I was gonna say that when I met you, I definitely had a very different perspective when I when, like before we got to know each other a little bit better because you are a very like nice mannered man, you know, and like you don't come on like super strong to someone or something, and you seem very polite and and also when I met you, it was at a karaoke bar and you were singing this song and it was uh I forget which one it was, but it was a soft like a softer song, and you have a nice soft voice, so in my mind the aso- the association was oh Kirk, he's such as this nice you know soft nice person uh, and one day you were telling me you played football, and I was like, what I, I I just couldn't picture it. I'm like, you were a football player? That's weird. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. In and you wrestled. Yeah, I wrestled. I played all sports yeah. except for hockey. But when I was growing, if if you meet someone from my childhood, particularly in high school, and they and you ask about me, they'll say, "Oh, Kirk, the captain of the football team." That that's what that's, they know me for. It's crazy. Even though that wasn't really the way I saw myself, you know. You're not a stereotypical what I would see in the movie, for example, of like that's the captain. That's the the airhead, you know, like bully captain of the football team. Right. Which I would like to dispel that 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 stereotype. But that's the, what movies show me. Right. The stereotype of a football player being stupid or, you know, you know, <laughs> you know whatever that is 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 just really not true. I mean, all sorts of guys like to play all sorts of sports and Right. You know, all right, another email from listener Karina. She says, excellent job you're doing, guys. I've been listening to your podcast already for a couple months, and seriously, I've learned a lot. My name is Cora, and I am following a psychiatry residentship in Holland. Next January, I'll be done. Anyway, I think it would be nice, especially for you therapists, to listen to different techniques. Oh, so she wants me to talk about different techniques of therapy, and I would love to talk about that. Um, I think I've done a few episodes on that, but um, but absolutely, uh, that's a podcast idea that that I would love to tackle. Like, <laughs> but I can't music. do it right now. <laughs> like song therapy. <laughs> yeah. Um, another person asked me to provide the references for the different studies that that I that I talk about, and the, I you know honor your request in a way, but I won't honor it in reality because it's too hard to fulfill. 
This podcast already takes me way too much time. I do a lot of prep. I have to set up all the microphones. I have to like, you know, get all the tougher bluffs ready and all the emails ready. And then I have to edit everything and I have to post it. It's all me. And I have a regular job. And this provides me almost no money. By the way, you could re- rectify that by going to psychologyinseattle.com and donating. For every donation, we will annotate one reference. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so for those reasons, I don't spend the time to provide the references because that would add time. So I'm, I apologize for that. But, but do your own goddamn research, people. It's not my responsibility. All right. Listener Jim says, love the podcast. I'm an avid listener as well as an LMFT or licensed marriage and family therapist under supervision. I have been working with an agency that primarily works with low SES clients or low socioeconomic low socioeconomic status clients, several of which demonstrate what we call victim mentality. I would love to hear a podcast on how you have dealt with that and how new counselors can better deal with this type of behavior. Any thoughts, Berto? Um, So to clarify, is this victim mentality as in uh, someone who feels they're always being victimized in spite of reality? Or is it someone who's actually being victimized and now has kind of trauma around that? Or is it both? (laughs) Yeah. I just want to point out that I'm having major deja vu because Berto and I actually recorded a podcast in which we already read this email, (laughs) but I lost the audio because my computer is... You know, has problems. But if you donate, maybe I'll be able to buy a better computer. This and, is not how I remember it. And we completely <laughs> lost the audio. And so, like, a number of moments in this conversation, I'm like, oh my God, like, we're having the exact same conversation. It's really weird. But anyway, often what people mean by victim mentality, and I don't know if this is what listener Jim is referring to, but often what we run, what I hear among people in, in agencies is, at at agencies where they serve low socioeconomic status people these you know these are high stressed families they're often single parents they're often single parent mothers and they're often on welfare and they have you know three or four kids maybe by different fathers there might be drug abuse history the kids are not doing well in school and the there's a there's a lot of stress there's not a lot of support there's maybe even health issues in the family and the families will come in and you know for various reasons like the kid isn't doing well in school or the kid is running away or the kid's skipping school or the kid is getting in fights at school or the kid is you know um, punched a teacher or something and then they they come into the agency and the mother will say to the therapist please help me with my child and what happens is because there's so much stress and so many different factors that go into why the presenting problem is presenting itself, because there's so many factors, it's difficult to change very quickly. And so what happens is you have all these therapists, and they're often novice therapists because those are the only people that work. Those, in order to get someone to work for such low pay and such high stress, these are typically novice therapists. There are some therapists that have been working in the field for 20, 30 years, and they work at an agency. But more typically, 
basically it's it's starting out. When I started out in my career, I worked at an agency such as I this see. because I couldn't build a private practice very easily without experience, and I you know just didn't have the experience to get better jobs. It's the McDonald's of the profession. Exactly, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Ironically, these are the hardest cases, of course. So it's just you know it's it's flipped around, which isn't fair to anybody. And it, the solution to this is that we need more tax dollars. We need that's that's the bottom line. We just need more funding and we need to raise taxes. It's just the way that it is. Uh, if you want to have quality clinicians, you're going to have to pay them more and, you know, da da da. So um, what happens is because these novice therapists are so eager to see change and they're so eager to, to, you know, they've been going to school for three years. They've been maybe thinking about being a therapist for 20 years and they finally get their first clients and they want, they want change right away. Mm. And a third of their clients get worse, a third of their clients stay the same, and a third of their clients kind of get better over a period of you know one or two years. And so what often happens is the novice therapists and the supervisors and the staff, there's this sort of us and them mentality where it, it's like you, you end up blaming the clients saying it's oh. like if, if they weren't – if they just didn't think of themselves as a victim, then I'd be able to like actually help them because you know, they're resistant. Now, I don't know if this is what listener Jim is talking about, but this is what I've observed mm-hmm. is that because they're so you know, naturally frustrated with the pace of therapy and that challenges their own ego regarding their effectiveness as a therapist, they look to a answer that is – palatable, which is there's something wrong with the clients. And okay, well, what's wrong with the clients? Well, they they have a victim mentality and they can't get over the thought that that they should be in a victim space and therefore they can't be helped by me even though I'm an awesome therapist. I see. So I I was thinking, um, because that that makes sense as one of the manifestations, I was kind of relating it back to the uh, environment I was growing up in when I was younger in Colombia, uh, as I've mentioned before, it's very violent. It's very tur- tumultuous. There's lots of poverty. And even what we called the middle class of the country, it was really not middle class as we would think of it. You know, it was, it was like what we would call here like the, the poor. <laughs> um, so in reality, there wasn't really a middle class. And so what happens is uh, in order to just survive, I think a lot of people – kind of uh, clinged, I'm going to sound like Obama now, they kind of clinged to religion, sports, beauty pageants, things like this, right? That's what Obama said? Well, he said uh, when people, when things get rough, people cling to religion and guns, right? And he got in trouble for saying that. Is that recent? No, it's it's a while ago. Oh. Yeah. So, um, but but so what I would hear, because I, I would hear the adults talking, especially like the grand, my grandparents' age and their and their relatives and stuff, and I would hear a lot of woe is me, like, oh, and I just complain, like I would hear a lot of complaining, right? But it was almost because there was really nothing they could do about anything. Like that, that's kind of the sense I get now. And so it almost was like that, that valve, that steam valve, like letting off steam. And because the only thing they could do was like, yep, oh, and then this happened and oh, man. And it, it felt like me, like they did like take on this role of like they're just victims and there's nothing they can do about it. But in some ways, I think it's because there wasn't much they could do about it. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a, an interesting way to be. Yeah. If I had a client and I have that seems to exhibit what we might call a victim mentality or the you know way you're depicting it. Mm-hmm. What I would do is I I, I have two different approaches. Mm-hmm. One is is that is that they they have had a lot of stress in their life 
and therefore they need someone to listen to them. Mm. They, if someone is complaining a lot and it, and it seems bothersome to you, it might be because no one's listened to them complain yet. They haven't received any any support right. in their life, and so one. So that would be the th- first thing I think. It was like, oh, okay. Well, I I need to spend a lot of time in therapy listening to them complain mm-hmm. because you know we all need someone to listen to us complain. <laughs> right. Uh, and it's one of the things I tell my supervisees. I say, if you don't have someone to complain to every day, then you're going to suffer. You need to have someone that will listen to you complain and vent for an hour or half an hour every day. This is not something you do once a week. Wow. Because being a therapist is very stressful. You need someone to listen to you. And so... so, That that makes a lot of sense. You're listening to so much stress coming your way. (laughs) Yeah. And, And in order to be open to that, you need to be, you know, supported yourself. So that would be the first thought. The other thought I would have is, well... They've learned, there's such a thing called learned helplessness, and and it's in social psychology and in psychology, and it's a real studied thing. The idea is is that if you grew up in a world in which you were basically helpless, then you don't have this notion that you can help yourself because history has shown that you can't. That life will just happen at you and there's nothing you can do about it. So as a therapist, how do I help someone to feel as though they have agency? And how do I help them to enact that agency? How do you get someone to feel their power? And the the way that generally it's done, and I guess in response to the other email about talking about theory, I'll talk about solution focused therapy, just as just as an idea. And there's also narrative, but but let me let me uh, let's role play it. So okay. so role play a victim mentality person. Okay, uh, you know, and I, you're you're you, you're a yeah, male, and I, I'm stuck in my job, and uh, I have this situation every day. The my my coworkers always yelling at me. Yeah, you know, and uh, I what I do is I'm, not, I'm an animator, and I have this coworker who also animates, and he's always yelling at me, and it, it, it thinks he's always blaming me for things going wrong. The animation's not getting done in time, yeah. and every day, and then my boss thinks it's my fault too. Yeah. So and everyone's feels, just mad at me. So it feels as though it's it's a helpless situation. Yeah, and I can't leave this job. You know, I need the money. Yeah. So you feel kind of trapped. Yeah. Yeah. Well, l- let me ask you. So in general, you often feel that way. You often feel helpless. You often feel like there's like there's nothing you can do. But but tell me about a time when you when you were able to uh, f- have some hope or when you were able to affect change. Well, when I first came to this job, I had actually left uh, another bad situation and I, I actually, I felt really proud of myself that I, that I left, but that was different. You know, that was yeah. like, yeah, that it's was different. So let me, I was younger then. So tell me about that. So you left a job because you wanted to improve your life. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I was younger, so I had less to lose. So you had less to lose. What did you do at that time at, when you you know what was your mentality and what did you do to improve your life? At that um, well, basically, I I was actually realizing that I was getting a little bit of a health issue happening with uh, you know my bowels. You know, I was getting a little bit of irritable irritable bowels because of the stress level, and so I decided 
that uh, I needed a change, and I, I, I kind of felt like, you know what? No job is worth my health in this case, mm-hmm. and I have nothing to lose here, and so I'm just going to go quit, and then I'll, I'm, I'll find something else. I see. Yeah. So in that moment, you, you, you thought, you know what? I, I have a health problem, yeah. and, I, and this job is making it worse. Is yeah. that what you're saying? And I don't like this job. I want to make my life better. Yeah. And you must have had hope in that moment. Otherwise, you wouldn't have done anything, right? Yeah, although it was kind of like, you know what? I guess the hope was that I'll figure something out. I'll figure something better out. Better than this. So so you were th- you were saying, I'll figure something out yeah. and I and I'm going to start looking for another job. Right. One that that will not irritate my bowels. Right. And you took action. Right. And you did. And what a great thing you did. I mean, that is a a leap of faith. Right. That you took that takes a lot of strength and a lot of determination. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there are a lot of reasons why you shouldn't have done that at That's the time. True. You're That's thinking, true. oh, you shouldn't have done it. But you decided. You you took life by the horns, and you did it. Okay. My friends were warning me not to quit at right. the time. So end scene. So you notice that, the, so in solution-focused therapy... What I did there, and everything I said was genuine. It's not a manipulation. Right, that's right, the right. that's the idea. Is, is like you're not trying to manipulate the client. You're right. just you're just asking in a particular area. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did was they call you ask for exceptions. Mm-hmm. So someone comes in and they have a problem and they say, Ah, my life sucks and I I can't do anything. Right. And, Life is hopeless, and I'll never amount to anything. And so the first question I asked was to ask for an exception to that. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so generally, and, and I language it in a certain way. Instead of saying, always life is hopeless, I said, generally. I inserted that mm-hmm. language to introduce the idea. This is a brief therapy. This is a Milton Erickson thing. This is, you know. And so I, I dropped that word in, generally. You, mm-hmm. you didn't say generally. Right. You said always. Right. But I know that's not possible, that it's always that mm-hmm. bad. It can't always be that way. So I said generally. It's, so I'm valuing what you're saying, but I'm wording it differently. It's also a narrative therapy thing. I'm changing the narrative, generally speaking. And then I said, so tell me a time when it wasn't that. Right. And then, you know, you were an easy client. You easily came up with something. Other clients might have a harder time getting to an exception to the rule. But we got to that exception, and then I highlighted it. So, And I noticed you were trying to bring it down again. You were like, well, yeah, you know, it was, it was probably a bad show. But I kept kind of avoiding those negative statements and, and kept kept you in the zone of what you were doing well. And then after, and then we expanded it, and then I complimented you on all the strengths mm. that you know, undoubtedly right. must have played a part in your ability to change things for yourself, all with the idea of look at how you can change your life and look at what you did and right. look at how you solved your problem. So instead of me as a therapist saying to you, you need to stop having a victim mentality. You need to be more strong. You need to have hope. I, I never said anything like that. Never That's did right. I tell you that you need to do something. And this right. is a trap that a lot of therapists fall into because they, they see the answer and they just want to bludgeon the, the client over the head with it. Ah. And the postmodern uh, therapies, the brief therapies, strategic, Milton Erickson, uh, solution-focused, narrative, collaborative people, solution-oriented people, they switch it around and they say, let's find it in the client. Let's find that solution because the solution exists in the client. We just have to find out where it is and emphasize it. And then when they walk out of the session, they feel more powerful. They have they have their own answer to their question. They have a tool they can use. That's, right. Yeah. And they have a mindset they can use. So and you're like you're like uh, Chris Angel, mind freak. You're like just freak my mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that makes sense because it's the um, and like you said, 
the the language that that one has and i've gone through this not literally with this scenario but i've gone through this in my own therapy that i've gone through uh, where i come in with a specific narrative and 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 it feel and you know when my therapist challenges me or inserts like you were saying different words into that narrative it oftentimes at first feels invasive to me because i'm like no 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 i'm doomed <laughs> you know like oh no 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 it is always and it's sometimes hard like to to like consider that maybe the narrative is part of the problem. But like what we were saying before about how uh, stressing factors might come from the, you know, like stressing factors come from the outside, but it's your interpretation of those that makes it stressful. It's kind of a same, similar idea that, that your narrative is, is how you narrate to yourself about what things are to you. Right. That's very powerful. Right. So if your narrative is that you're a victim and you're, you can't do anything in the world, then that's how you're going to live your life. Um, the other thing I'll point out is that if the client feels as though they are resisting what the therapist is doing, in solution-focused or narrative therapy or collaborative therapies, brief therapies, you've failed as a therapist. You know, you, know, you shouldn't kill yourself. But, but the whole idea of solution-focused therapy is it should never or should very rarely it should feel as though the the therapist has an agenda like when i was talking to you if if you started to present resistance it's like well okay kirk i see what you're doing you're trying to make me look on the positive i would say oh okay oh i'm sorry that yeah maybe i was you know so because the solution focused postmodern collaborative folks are so pure collaborative mm. that you would never as a therapist try to make the client do something and if it was ever, if you ever gave that vibe as a therapist, it instantly makes it not solution-focused therapy. There's this other form of therapy called motivational interviewing, or it's a technique in therapy, and it's often used in chemical dependency. And the motivational interviewing people do pretty much the exact same thing that solution-focused people do, but motivational interviewing people, they know the answer to the question. Mm. So solution-focused people, they don't know. So you would have to say... I have a problem with my ability to get things done. And then I would say, would you like to work on that? And, I'd say, and then we'd say, okay. And then we'd move forward. You but, wouldn't form a theory about what you think is wrong with Right, you. exactly. And, and non-post, what they call postmodern or collaborative therapies, they, they tend to have the therapist derive at times mm. the, the, the problem. You know, the, it or, was the mother's nipple that he didn't get enough of. <laughs> that's right. That's your Austrian accent. That's my Austrian accent. <laughs> yeah. Whereas collaborative therapies, they would never do that. Whereas motivational interviewing, you, they do. So in, you know, in chemical dependency, often the you know, chemical dependency counselor, they know that the client needs to stop using heroin, for instance. They know. Okay, got it. They know. They right. The, if the client said after ten sessions, you know, I'm cool with using heroin. I'll, I'll just keep it at a certain level, and I'll yeah. make sure I'm safe. CD uh, chemical dependency people would never say, "Oh, that's fine if that's what you want to do." Right. But they will use motivational interviewing in a solution focused way. So, so say, so let's I'll role play okay. motivational interviewing. You're you're you use heroin every day, mm-hmm. and and you don't want to be in session with okay. me. And and you just sat down. So, okay. but we've had a couple sessions, so we're not completely. Okay. Yeah. So so how's it going? Fine. I've actually been better than I felt in a long time. Oh, good. Yeah. And your heroin use? How's that going? 
Uh, well, so I kind of found like a happy medium, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, I I kind of figured that I don't like quitting altogether. What happens is I just get too stressed for that. I actually kind of feel sick. Uh, and and we obviously know that I just can't keep doing it the way I was doing it. But it, so like I'm kind of keeping it on like this nice balance. Okay. So you're finding balance, and you're able to reduce the the neg some of the negative effects. Yeah. That had yeah. And you're happy about that. Totally. I'm feeling great. Right. Yeah. You're, and and well, but you also said did did I catch that you also said that you there are still some bad things. Is that what you said? Well, I mean, like the I everyone's got bad times and stuff like that. But I I'm just saying like I'm having like you know people aren't finding me like you know passed out in the bathroom like you know I'm, great and uh, and I feel good you know I, yeah. Well, that's quite a success. It takes hard to do, and you've you've really you know pushed yourself hard to reduce your use and you found a lot of success that's great good yeah. for you good for you sweet yeah um okay i'm not very good at motivational interviewing so where do we go from here let me think uh so um so if there were negative effects to your current level of use what would they be if there were I, I mean, I, I just like every time I, every time in the past, like it's more about like you know, it, it, it sure it, it can affect my relationships, and uh, as you know, I, I lost one job because of it, but that's uh, that's when I go too far, like you know, right? It's really all up to me to like just not go too far, right? I see. So it's up to you, which makes you know makes sense to to have an effect on your use. Yeah. To reduce the negative effects yeah. of the use. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're okay with your current level of use. That's what you're saying. I mean, like, sure, I get I get desires. Like, you know, obviously, it's it's something I enjoy doing uh, in the vacuum of, like, outside of the negative effects, I enjoy doing it. So, of course, I want to do more. But I, as long as I don't, like, I just got to keep it in check. That's the point. Right. You know? Right. So, scene. This is why I don't like motivational interviewing <laughs> because because as a collaborative therapist, I don't it, it's hard for me to be in a space where I have an agenda that you don't have. Right. Where where I'm like in my mind I'm trying to get you to admit that you should be you should quit. Right. <laughs> when I just I don't have those thoughts with my clients. I don't you know, I wonder if cuz I don't know the background with motivational therapy. Uh but I'm wondering if like you were doing earlier with me about like tell me about a time where it wasn't blah blah blah. Uh I wonder if like asking me like you know tell me about this last week. Tell me tell me what you how this last week went or something where yeah. where I might just start talking and then all of a sudden I'm like well and I got in a fight with my girlfriend but you know and like that might give you an in or something. Right. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, know if that's yeah. a Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. That that would that would have been a Cuz cuz I feel like in these scenarios and again I Obviously, I have no training in this, but just just even from experience with people that have had addiction problems and my own addiction problems with with uh, spending money in, in the past that were actually very very serious. Um, I feel like the the giveaways happen when you get into the details about the day to day because you know you'll say like how's how's it been? Oh great! Like oh tell me about this week. And I might have said you know I um, I mean I did buy a jacket, but it, it was you know I. I, I sold stock. It was fine. You know, it, it's like you could uh, you could get to those little bits, and then you're like, "Oh, tell me more about that." And it's like, "Did you mean to sell stock?" Like, I, I kind of feel like once you get them talking, them meaning the person with a problem, 
I think if it's really still a problem, the truth might come out through their narrative. You know? Right, right. But anyways, now I'm spouting. No, no, that's good. Uh, okay, tougher bluff. Police who are at high risk for PTSD. So p- police officers who are, you know, because of their jobs, they, they, they're at high risk for PTSD. Negative personality traits may protect them from PTSD. Tougher bluff. Oh, yeah. I could see that. I'm going to go with tough because, okay, for example, a psychopath. I would call that negative personality traits. Um, a psychopath would probably not suffer from PTSD because they probably won't, they just won't feel the fear. They won't feel the empathy. They won't feel these things. So they probably won't have the PTSD, but clearly wouldn't want them to be psychopaths. So I'm going to go tough. Well, it's bluff. Oh. It's a poorly designed okay. tougher bluff question once, once I tell you this. Okay. <laughs> I just realized that. So it's positive personality traits that actually protect police at high okay. risk for PTSD. The study examined the association between resilience, satisfaction with life, and gratitude Mm. and in symptoms with PTSD and found that resilience, satisfaction in life, and gratitude actually protected some police officers from PTSD during Hurricane Katrina. You know, but that makes sense. I guess I was only thinking about one extreme, which is... I'm, sh- you know, like maybe I am right about my psychopath hypothesis, but if you're constantly dealing with stress and with like bad situations and you don't have a good outlook on life and you're not easily able mm-hmm. to calm yourself and stuff like that, then yeah, that would be worth Yeah. Worldview, I'm realizing, has a, a lot of effects on a lot of things. When you go through, uh, when you have a loss, your worldview will affect the grief you experience. Everyone grieves after a loss, but if you have a positive worldview... Like the world is a good place, people are good, I am safe, these kinds of things, then it tends to go better for you. Now, it's yeah. not always a choice that you make because if life has not been safe for you in your lifetime, then that is going to make you have a worldview that the world is not safe, right? That's true. But it's hard to cope with life and difficulties when you think that the world is a dangerous, horrible place. And actually, so I'm sure you've seen Seven. <laughs> yeah, love that movie. So uh, it's interesting because like the the outlook of Morgan Freeman kind of summarized at the end when his quote is, uh, and he's quoting someone else. I forget Keats or someone. Like, he's saying the world is a vampire. <laughs> the world is a vampire. No, it's something like the world is a, a terrible place or a horrible place and worth fighting for. I can't, I'm totally butchering the quote, but the idea was his perspective on life was, hey, I'm aware that reality is really ugly and there's all this ugliness in the world, but I still feel that it's important to live and fight, right? And so it's kind of like that. that's his way of protecting himself and that kind of keeps him protected from all that horribleness that he witnesses. Brad Pitt is Brad Pitt's character is way more vulnerable in my opinion because he seemed to have this worldview that like nothing can really touch him you know like things are good and, and you know this seemed like his first really bad case that he had to deal with and he was trying to like just rush through it and stuff like this so that big upset at the end is probably going to shock his worldview to the core and he might have a harder time adapting from that whereas I feel like Morgan Freeman's going to keep on carrying on which uh, yeah so so that's my movie analysis of worldview. <laughs> so Brad Pitt is going to shoot... Spoiler alert! Is going to shoot uh, Kevin Spacey, right? Spoiler alert, yeah. He's already opened the box. He's, he's going to shoot the yeah. guy who killed his wife, right. and Morgan Freeman is saying, Brad Pitt, don't shoot him. Don't shoot him. Morgan Freeman, in spite of how horrible this is, and granted, it's not his wife, but still, he cared a lot for her. He's sitting there going like, I know the world is terrible, 
but we keep on keeping on. Tougher buff, using a light-emitting electric device before bedtime negatively affects sleep, next morning alertness, and circadian timing. Using a light-emitting electronic device like an iPad or your phone before bedtime negatively affects sleep, next morning alertness, and circadian timing. Tougher bluff. It is so tough, Why and I you? experience it firsthand quite often, and I need to stop experiencing it. Mm. I end up using my phone in bed right before I fall asleep, and sometimes it falls on my face. <laughs> sometimes hard <laughs> and it's really bad for you and really so you're holding your ipad above your face or your do you use your phone or your ipad it's my phone luckily. so you'll be reading it and you fall asleep and it literally falls on your head it falls on my face <laughs> you'll fall like, asleep boom! oh <laughs> <laughs> all right i found the quote by the way oh no actually here we go here we go uh tougher bluff the quote the world is a fine place and worth fighting for is by William Somerset. Uh, I have I don't even know where to begin. Bluff. Okay, of course, because that William Somerset is the uh, character in the movie Morgan Freeman's character. The quote is actually by Ernest Hemingway. Okay. So the the full quote at the end of the movie is Ernest Hemingway once wrote, "The world is a fine place and worth fighting for." I agree with the second part. So that's that's really telling of his worldview because he's basically saying the world is not a fine place, but it is worth fighting for. So yeah, so people stop looking at your phones before you go to sleep. It's not natural, and it'll screw up your sleep. I I find I mean I I've done it myself, and I don't think it's going to necessarily screw up your sleep, but it's it's probably not a good idea. And if you're having trouble with your sleep, then this is one area that you might be able to affect change. Yeah. Well, I had trouble with my sleep last night, and I used my phone right before I fell. Well, did you have trouble falling asleep? No, not that. I had trouble in that when I woke up in the morning, I was a mess. Like you, you didn't feel. I that. didn't want to get up. I had gotten enough sleep. I didn't want to get up. I felt really like, like, uh, you know, like not awake and alert. It took me a while to, you know, blah 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 blah. Huh. And I didn't feel that soreness in my throat that I sometimes feel when I've been snoring, which could be, you know. So I was like, ah. So then I'm like, damn it. Maybe it's because I was on my phone. <laughs> you snore so much that you feel sore in your throat in the morning? Not always, but sometimes. I I, I didn't realize this. It took me a while to realize this because the, uh, there were times where I would wake up and I'm like, Oh, I think I'm getting sick. My my throat is sore, right? And then over the years, I realized that sometimes it's acid reflux. Sometimes it's because I snore. And sometimes I'm getting sick. <laughs> yeah. All right, tougher bluff. Parents who use material goods to reward or punish their children may be setting those children up for difficulties in adulthood. Tougher bluff. Parents who use material goods like toys and this kind of money oh, no. to reward or punish their children may be setting up those children for difficulties in adulthood. Tougher bluff. Oh my god. Uh bluff because oh no, I know it's tough. Come on. Tough because it doesn't give them an inner sense of a comp or an an inner reward system of like the, you know, the journey is the destination kind of thing and instead it makes everything about what they're going to get out of it and so tough. Yeah, tough. The researchers found that when parents rewarded children with gifts for accomplishing something or to show affection or punish children by taking away something, the children were more likely as adults to believe that success in life is defined by possessing material goods or that acquiring certain products will make them more attractive. 
you can relate to this because you were talking about how your family would buy your love with stuff and then you be, you became addicted to material things. Totally. Totally. I, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of incredible how these things get connected, but they do. You, you know, you, you, uh, hey, congratulations on that test. Here's your 10 bucks, right? But you do it once, maybe it's fine, but you do it repeatedly in many different ways. And then, yeah, you're right. Then later you're, you're like, I'm worthless because I didn't make enough money this year or whatever other problem. Yeah. The, what I, cause I talk to a lot of parents as a family therapist. And when I bring up this point, they'll say, so what am I supposed to do? I mean, it's the only thing that works. When I want them to do something, I have to use an incentive. And when they do something bad, the, the only thing that works is when I take away something. And it's a complex issue and parenting is extremely complex. And so it's not cut and dry like you should never, ever use material goods or money or something to reward or punish people. But the idea is, is that if that's all that you do, and if... <laughs> did my cat... Ow! <laughs> I got attacked. By, by the cat. My hand got... Yeah. Does it, did it draw blood? No. Okay. My cat, on the other hand, last night jumped up on my foot, bit and scratched with both claws. I had three Band-Aids on my foot. It was ridiculous. I was so pissed. Anyways, sorry. Uh, the idea is, is that the best way to reward children is through approval and by talking, giving them attention, essentially. Wow. So, you know, because the, this, the, there's this weird idea in our culture that children only respond to tangible rewards. But when you study people, they are much more likely to respond to social rewards than they ever will to money uh, rewards. Mm. I mean, think about things like Twitter and YouTube and stuff. Most people get no money from these activities, but they're highly active on these things. That's true. Wikipedia is completely free. People donate their time. How many likes did I get today? Right. How many likes did I get? That will get people much more motivated right. than paying someone money and with and with no social rewards. And so with children, there are you know, exaggerations of this to some extent. And so when a child does something well, like they get good grades, if you give them attention and love and accolades and that you're proud of them and that you recognize all their hard work and you praise them, this is much, much more effective to reinforce the behavior mm. than giving them $10. Wow. Now, you can give them $10, but you also have to give them all the other stuff. Right, the right, right. If you only give them $10, then you're creating a monster. Now, what if you give them $100? Well, that's completely <laughs> different. I remember growing up, a friend of mine would get $20 if he got an A. Oh, my God. And I got straight A's. <laughs> for, for nothing. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, my God, uh, I'd be rich. I'd be rich. So if I had I had I had straight A envy or straight A money envy. Yeah. Because my brother so my brother Your own brother. Yeah, my brother's a half brother, right? So he had a step I have a stepdad. Yeah. His dad is not my dad, right? Yeah. And so he had a policy that for every A he got, he would give him, my brother, some money. I forget, maybe it was but 10 not bucks. You? Well, because he wasn't my dad. But you're I family. know, I know, it's bullshit, right? Okay, and for every uh, c good tooth he had, he would also get, you know, every time he went to the dentist. It, How much money? 
I don't know, like five bucks per tooth or something. Per, it was a you, lot of money. You have like 26 teeth in your I know. Mouth. Or maybe it was a dollar per tooth. I don't know. But he got, all I'm saying is he got a lot of money this way. And I was always like, mom, what is going on? Like, how come I'm not? And she's like, well, that's, that's him. You got to talk to your stepdad, right? I'm like, what? And so I was always so jealous. But in, in the end, maybe it was okay. Maybe it was fine. It's BS, man. <laughs> I hope you've yelled at him. No, yeah, because I'm now grateful that I didn't, because I, I ended up loving getting A's just for the sake of it. <laughs> I, can, I can hear it. Uh, here's a, an email from listener S. He or she says, your unbiased assessment of Elliot Roger allows a person to see Elliot as a human being with severe emotional problems. It allows one to focus on some of the possible factors that led him to commit a horrendous crime without getting wrapped up in the crime itself. So this was in response to our episode. Right. Uh, we had, had two episodes on Elliot Roger, the guy who killed a bunch of people in California a year ago-ish. Yeah. Most other assessments or news media reports online either slight the listener to brutality of the crime before it is revealed or cloud the assessment with either minimizing his paralyzing fears or presenting in such a way that one stops listening to what may have led to his crime because one starts to feel that trying to understand the complexity of his personality leads to feelings of guilt due to the brutality of the murders. Your way of assessing him allows the listener to separate the crime until the last possible moment and listen objectively, very professional and insightful. So I didn't, when I started reading this email, I didn't realize it was just a bunch of praise. But but yeah, when I agree, when, when I would read media reports and listen to, you know, or to, and watch news reports of the Elliot Roger uh, story. It's just interesting how if you just consume the normal amount of media on a, on a story like that, you get a very, very limited picture of what actually happened. And so I decided I got really obsessed with this story. I said, oh, I'll do an episode on Elliot Roger. And then it just blossomed into this thing where I was spent, I probably spent, I'm not even joking, like 30 hours researching and like writing stuff down because there were all these accounts and I was trying to fit together an entire storyline. And then I had to do a lot of analyses and read a lot of personality books and stuff. And, and so in order to really understand something like this, and I don't even think I really understand it. I just, I think I just did a comprehensive review. Um, it, it takes a lot of effort. And what, you know, the, the things that people pulled away from the Elliot Rogers story when it first came out was misogynist white boy goes on killing spree of sorority girls because they wouldn't have sex with him. That's right. Yeah. That was that, that was, was the narrative. That was the narrative. And so naturally from that narrative we get this other story of like people saying therefore, you know, and, and people saying, look, you know, if men weren't misogynists, they wouldn't go on killing sprees of sorority girls. And then the not all men thing right. came out where it was like, not all men are misogynist killers and, you know, stop equating. And so, you know, these really simplistic viewpoints just, totally. just I think, miss the overall point of the fact that you had an individual that was suffering a great deal his entire life, yep. was a, 
very disturbed individual and had a very odd way of seeing the world. Yeah. And he happened to be a misogynist, absolutely, and he absolutely had been hurt by women in the past. But pretty much it was automatically going to happen because he was an extremely awkward person. I mean, yeah. you know, there's awkward people like nerd awkwardness. He was beyond, beyond awkward. He was a very strange individual. Yeah, yeah. It actually minimizes the cause for day-to-day misogyny that affects the broad society by by pointing to this one very isolated incident it's like see that's the problem right there it's like well then then that would the conclusion would be like oh great then actually we've solved it because most men don't go on killing sprees so i guess we're done we're done no one's misogynist which is obviously the wrong clue. so let's conclude the podcast with a little song you and me sunday driving not arriving on our way back home. We're on our way home. We're on our way home. We're going home. All right, that is it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. And if you have someone that you can go down the road together and burning matches together, then you should do that. Yeah, that's that would be very beautiful. <laughs>